Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 6th, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. It's the 50th anniversary of the East Los Angeles walkout, or the Chicano blowout as it's also known. Thinking of that gesture and those efforts now as students organize in around You Name the Movement today. As for our program, UCI neurobiology and anatomy professor, Dr. Danielle Piumeli will get past the prejudices through a commitment to fully researching the use of cannabis now that the recreational use of cannabis is legal in California. Critical areas for our attention are age-specific impacts of cannabis on the brain, the extent to which cannabis influences one's ability to drive, and how cannabis's pain management properties might help in dealing with the opiate crisis. Before we head to a short break, I'm delighted to have on Tara White. She's an intern at Radio KUCI's training program and a recent guest on this show in her capacity as vice president of the Science Policy Group. Welcome, Tara, to Studio A again. Thank you. Good morning. Good to be here. Good morning. Well, tell us, um, well, I'm welcoming you be back. What kind of program would you like to produce, had you thought? Well, so I'm thinking about starting a public affairs show in which we uh, look at various topics within the area of science policy. So how can scientific research inform public policy? And that's really broad, but one good example will... Might be today, though. Might be today, exactly. So we'll see how this goes. Okay. Well, very good. Well, you know, and uh, with your work in neurobiology and behavior, I'm, I'm happy to have you jump in anytime with questions, follow-up questions, though, because y- your knowledge base exceeds mine. I have no dread in, in admitting here. So thank you for that. We'll be right back, everybody. Stay tuned. Welcome back, everyone. Returning to Ask a Leader is our guest for the whole hour, Dr. Danielle Piomelli, Professor of Anatomy and Neurobiology of the Louise Turner Arnold Chair in Neurosciences with joint appointments in the School of Medicine's Chemistry and Pharmacology and co-director of UCI's Institute for the Study of Cannabis. And I, I guess while we're just mentioning that, it, is that what used to be the Multican, but was changed to this new name? The new name actually is Center for the Study of Cannabis. Center for the Study of Cannabis. Okay, not okay. So it's a it's a work in progress, but you, it you're is settling. a work in progress. Okay, well, just like <laughs> the whole research. So Dr. Piamelli is also the director of the UCI Department of Pharmacology National Institute on Drug Abuse training grant and Center for Drug Discovery. And among his 20 years of publications, actually it's many more than that, it's probably more like 28 to 30. His focus is exemplified in the title, The Molecular Logic of Endocannabinoid Signaling. His most recent substantial grants include Lipid Biosignatures of Drug Addiction, 
optimization and preclinical development of FAAH inhibitors. And I want to say, and that's, is that anandamides? Those yeah, that's related to the related uh, endocannabinoids, yeah. For, for smoking sensation. And a, a novel treatment of chronic pain, Daniel Piomelli descends from a number of pharmacists with an over 400-year-old business in Naples, Italy. His plans with that profession were altered a bit when his appetite for intellectual discovery was honed during his undergraduate studies in archaeology. He completed his pharmacy doctorate at the University of Naples, his PhD in pharmacology at Columbia University, and has been studying and publishing about cannabinoids for over 27 years. Among the prodigious list of academic distinctions he's garnered over those years are his most recent ones, his honorary doctorate of medicine degree at Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany, fellow of the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology, the Mechulam, Mechulam Award from the International Cannabinoid Research Society, and the Esther Fried Award for the basic research from the International Association for Cannabinoid Medicines. He has offered uh, uh, before the Senate Health, uh, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Uh, he's offered testimony there. And the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Crime and Terrorism. It's a pleasure to have him return to the show with his leading edge concerns about replacing prejudices with a better understanding of how cannabinoids work in our bodies, especially on our brains. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Daniel Piomilli. Thank you, Claudia, for having me here. So let's begin with how cannabis works. We talked a little bit about that in your appearance with Joe Dunn last, I think it was last fall. So let's, do we know and understand everything about this plant? Are there still mysteries that need to be solved? We know a lot. We know a lot about how cannabis works. Um, we don't know very well um, how it interacts with the human body. Uh, we still have a lot of questions there, but we already have a pretty strong knowledge about the, uh, the working of the plant itself. It contains uh, a compound which we all know is called tetrahydrocannabinol THC, and that's the, you know, the chemical that uh, really uh, is responsible for the high, you know, the becoming, you know, intoxicated. The bliss. And, yeah, one such a thing. Uh, and, you know, all the, you know, all, all, all that people seek in, uh, in, uh, in cannabis, 95% uh, of what people seek in cannabis is due to, to THC. But there are also a lot of other chemicals in the plant, and there is now a lot of interest in understanding how those other chemicals, for example, cannabidiol, um, interact with THC to produce the, you know, the special effects of uh, the cannabis has in, uh, you know, individually in, in different people. Okay, tell us. Then, I'm when we, in preparation, you broke it down in so many really fascinating ways. And, and as you say, this is all a work in progress. There's so much more that needs to be investigated. But you do know some very interesting things about how cannabis affects the brain specific to ages and why we need to be very uh, clear on that with more research so we know what's happening to young brains, and adolescent brains, middle-aged brains, and middle-aged and elderly brains. So can you give us a sort of breakdown of what is known about the cannabinoids effect on the, uh, the different ages? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. The, um, um, it requires that I take a step back Please. and tell a little bit more about uh, uh, 
how exactly THC works right. in uh, in the body. Um, and I don't want to sound like I'm giving you a lecture here, but the there's uh, nothing wrong with that. Well, it is an interesting story at the end of the day, uh, because THC doesn't work just by itself. It works because it uh, it mimics. Uh, it's similar to uh, substances that our body, our brain, but our body at large uh, makes. Um, those co- those compounds are called endogenous cannabinoids or endocannabinoids for short. And they, uh, over the last 25 years since the uh, discovery of the first one, back in the 1990s, early 1990s, um, we really uncovered a lot of exciting and interesting things that these compounds do uh, way unexpected. For example, yeah, we assumed that there would be cannabinoids, endocannabinoids in the brain. There are cannabinoid receptors to which THC binds and to which also this compound bind. But uh, now we know that there are cannabinoid receptors and endocannabinoids also outside the brain in areas where we really did not expect them. For example, in uh, in white uh, adipose tissue, which is white fat, and they uh, serve very important roles in regulating, for example, uh, uh, the way we ab- uh, absorb and maintain energy in the form of uh, fat in our fat stores. Um, this is really, I think, what we have learned in the last uh, 20 years, that uh, uh, the endocannabinoid system is a pervasive uh, signaling system that uh, serves multiple functions in the body. In the brain, through the cannabinoid receptors, it regulates um, uh, our ability to cope and respond uh, to stressful uh, situations, um, as well as our mood, uh, our anxiety, uh, our fears. Those are all that's a, a cluster of of phenomena and behaviors that are all underpinned in a very important way by this endocannabinoid signals through the cannabinoid receptors. Um, but uh, other important areas uh, or functions in which the endocannabinoids can participate in uh, are, as I said before, metabolism, the regulation of feeding and the regulation of uh, of our ability to store fat. With the obvious evolutionary uh, underpinnings. Yeah, there is an obvious evolutionary underpinning there. It's very adaptive, actually, the, you know, in... Uh, um, as we evolved as a species, we had no access, of course, to refrigerators and uh, and supermarkets. So we had to uh, uh, find our own food. And one of the key uh, uh, nutrients in food that uh, we need, we need it for a number of reasons, uh, is fat. And it turns out that the endocannabinoid system evolved in part because uh, of our need to secure sufficient quantities of fat and be able to store that fat in an appropriate manner and to mobilize it when uh, when it's needed for energy. Uh, so from feeding to storage of fat, it's, it's really the same overarching logic, the right. need to secure nutrients and particularly this uh, subclass of nutrients, the fat that is really so so important, especially for our brain. But the other major area in which the endocannabinoid system has a really important role is pain. And um, because we'll go into that in great detail, the pain as a section. But we're looking at how um, but you're talking about that and how it affects the the different ages of the brain and that and those risk factors associated with different ones. Or should we open up the whole pain category. Uh, let me go point. back to your question, okay, Claudia. So, You're so, right. Uh, so that the with the young brain where there is 
uh, little or no risk aversion, then what role the cannabinoid uh, exposure plays in young brains at that point? Well, for our listeners, first of all, it's important to understand that the brain changes a lot with age over time. Brain development does not stop at birth. Brain development actually uh, proceeds uh, without interruption all the way to adulthood. And even in adulthood, as we uh, reach a certain age, the brain keeps changing in very, very important ways. And uh, the endocannabinoid system, so the cannabinoid-like compounds made by the brain and their receptors, those, that, that system of signaling uh, changes along with the, uh, the brain. And sometimes uh, during our uh, life story, uh, it, it plays a more important role than others. And there was one uh, time where I think all scientists agree that the endocannabinoid system is important, and that's adolescence. Um, the adolescence is a very uh, delicate time for the brain because the brain is actually, during adolescence, uh, chipping off uh, uh, synapses to uh, stabilize uh, w- what will be the eventual uh, mature uh, synaptic tree throughout the, uh, the CNS, the central nervous system. So it is really a molding time for the brain. And in that molding, uh, somehow, and we don't fully understand how, but somehow endocannabinoids play a very important role. In fact, it, they play a role in, in almost in, in making us be what we are as adolescents. There is an interesting study okay. in which they've shown, in using, using rats, that if one maintains the endocannabinoid system at the same level of activity it has during adolescence, maintains this same level of activity during the adult age, the behavior of those adults that have that elevated endocannabinoid system is actually more similar to an adolescent behavior than to an adult behavior. So let me say this in a different way. During adolescence, the endocannabinoid system is, uh, uh, the action of the activity of the system is boosted. Right. Then normally it comes down. But if one is able, and people can do this in animals using genetic means, if one is able to keep the system up, then the animals never quite completely stop being kids. They never quite completely stop to be teenagers. They behave in terms of risk-taking, in terms of uh, playing behavior. They behave a lot more like teenagers. Frivolous act. Well, Fri- yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, these are frivolous for adults, but they are really, really fundamental and meaningful for for adolescents. For yeah. Okay. So now the key thing is, of course, if this is what the endocannabinoid system does in adolescence, it means that uh, uh, interfering with the working of the system by an excessive use of uh, of THC of cannabinoids or cannabis containing THC could be problematic, and that's obviously a very, very important question for public health. And so, so the rewards, it's feeding a reward kind of feedback versus an alarm system going off. There's a, there's a risk with, associated with a certain activity with the adolescent brain that, um, that it's re, it reinforces risky behavior and it's not signaling a, an alarm, a warning that maybe the risky behavior is, should be averted, avoided with the adolescent brain. Oh, well, 
Honestly, we cannot answer that question. Okay, that's the, still it, you know, it is it is impossible to answer it right now. The, the, the signs of the uh, endocannabinoid forms enough yet. <laughs> the signs of the endocannabinoid system in adolescents is still it's uh, it's pretty nascent. It's still in the early stages, but uh, as I said. What it's telling us is that this system changes with age. And again, another big change uh, that could happen, and we think it does happen, is in uh, in late adulthood, in senior years. Starting uh, like, like in after, humans would like be late 60s? In, in humans would be after 55. After 55. Right. Oh yeah. Company president. Yeah. to your op-ed, there's a, there's a large increase in use among senior citizens, correct? Oh yeah, there has been in the last ten years about a threefold increase in use of in of, of cannabis in people above the age of fifty five, and mostly due to medicinal cannabis use, um, because of the relaxing and you know sleep inducing and analgesic effects or pain killing effects of cannabis. A lot of people in the group age group are, are seeing a, a, an increase in use. But the interesting thing is that whereas in young folks, in young animals for sure, but also in young people, the uh, intoxication uh, induced by cannabis causes uh, clearly a, um, a decrease and impairment in cognition. This may not be very, very, very much the case in elderly, in elderly animals and in elderly folks, because the, uh, at least what we know from animal studies is that the cannabinoid system, the endocannabinoid system, protects and, and, and favors cognition in old age. Wow. Um, it's a, a neuroprotective. <laughs> yeah. It is a little, what's counterintuitive here is that we are, by, you know, by, own, by our own mental structure, we are kind of taught to think that if something is black, it's black throughout. But the endocannabinoid system, it's not black throughout. Sometimes it is black, sometimes it's black, it's white, sometimes it's gray. And we or need to understand. <laughs> it's in a technicolor system. Yeah. yeah it's very, very, it, it is really so subtle in its actions. It's fascinating the way it works because it really regulates the activity of individual synapses. It, it tunes them to what they need to be. So because it tunes all synapses all over the brain, you can imagine that that tuning cannot be fixed once and for all. It has to change. And then because everybody is equipped differently with these kinds of receptors, correct? So like from individual to individual within a particular age along the continuum aging, that can also be a variation. Then we'll talk about that in uh, how cognition for like operating a car and all that kind of thing are are involved. So... But but that's but the variation from person to person also confounds our understanding of how the endocannabinoids are working. Genetic variability in the endocannabinoid system is certainly there. Um, how it affects our res- different responses to uh, to cannabis and you know how it affects the functioning of the endocannabinoid system is not really not really clear yet. And that's a very, very important area of investigation, especially moving forward if we uh, want to develop medicines that are actually uh, based on this system and have all the positive uh, effects of cannabis without reproducing the negative effects that it, the, the plant has. The holy grail. Yeah, that is, uh, that is what we're all seeking. For those of you who've just joined us here on Ask a Leader. My guest is UCI Neurobiology and Anatomy Professor Dr. Daniel Piumelli. He's also the co-director of the UCI Center 
for the study of canvas. We used to call it multi-can here, but this, this just in, this breaking news, it's, it's renamed now the Center for the Study of Cannabis, whose mission will be to, and is addressing the medical, legislative, and cultural challenges posed by this historic transformation. He's studying the body's cannabinoid system and is a proponent in closing the research gap for fuller application of cannabis to treat people of all ages, and that's what we're talking about now. So I want to break down one more age group that you were talking about in preparation for this interview is determining the impacts on the fetus when pregnant women use cannabis. It's problematic, as you mentioned, because women, pregnant women that are exposed to cannabis, they're exposed to a lot of other things. So isolating what would be the role of cannabis is a problem. But you've talked, to, so you can talk a little bit about that and talk about how that complication is bypassed with the stem cell research applied here. Yeah. The question is essentially how does cannabis use uh, impact the development of the fetus, uh, of the human fetus? And from what we understand of um, the role of the cannabinoid system in fetal development, um, this is a signaling uh, complex that plays a very, very important role in uh, allowing the uh, the neurons to uh, migrate to the right place uh, in the brain where they uh, belong in the uh, in the fully mature in the fully, fully mature central nervous system. So, if we were to take uh, away the system or we were to uh, excessively activate the system, the brain would not mature uh, in an appropriate way. It would not be a healthy. A healthy brain. Does that this mean is that, like the whole myelination process? Is, is that sort of like interfere with? But this is way before that. This way, is actually the migration I'm, of neurons to the appropriate to the public place in in the in the central nervous system. And uh, again, as I said before, this is a very pervasive signaling system. It means that it's all over the place, and it modulates it's a lot of a lot of different things. Okay. It's a very, very, very important system. So the fact that it's so pervasive and it's so it's omnipresent, it makes it very hard uh, to find a, a situation where it does not play a role. But in development, I think there is consensus that its role is really fundamental. So uh, what do we know? This begs the question. What do we know about the impact of using cannabis on humans and the development of of the fetus um, in humans. Unfortunately, we know very, very little. We know uh, that uh, women who uh, smoke during pregnancy smoke, not use smoke. That's big. So it's a specific right. a specific way of consuming cannabis. Uh, usually, deliver babies that have a lower birth weight. But this the interpretation of this data has to be very cautious. First of all, there are a lot of different things that can confuse uh, these studies, and we need to be aware of the fact that people who use during pregnancy usually who use cannabis during pregnancy also use other things often. Uh, but also, uh, the act of smoking itself can be uh, can be problematic because uh, if you if what you smoke, of course, you're replacing oxygen with carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide, and this typically causes a, 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 a diminished nourishment of the of the fetal brain and the fetal body in general. That could be, uh, and, and it's thought to be really the cause for uh, the, this low birth weight that has been observed in epidemiological studies. But again, 
if we think about the endocannabinoid system and we know that by using THC, the system can be cannabis-containing THC, the system can be affected, I think we should be very, very careful about using cannabis during pregnancy. Even if we don't have the data yet to say, oh, look, this is really dangerous for this, this, and this reason, I think uh, a pregnant woman should consider um, should think very, very, uh, very carefully before using during pregnancy. Uh, one thing that I have heard is happening, and I'm actually I've seen with the folks I've been talking to, but I have also read it, is that young women who are who are who, who expect, um, of course, don't use wine anymore, don't use alcohol anymore, because they un- they're very conscious of the problems uh, yeah, in, in, with with alcohol. They also are, you know, not using tobacco either. Uh, again, tobacco and alcohol have, in a sense, a bad rep that way. They don't, ha- they don't see cannabis as being equally problematic, equally dangerous. So particularly in the third semester, as you know, they start having morning sickness and stuff like that, they tend to, some of them, use, especially because they go to a dispensary, they ask, and the dispensary staff would tell them, yeah, sure, use this because it, it helps you, or use that because it doesn't help. Don't use that because it doesn't help you. Now, dispensary staff, I mean, with all due respect, are not very knowledgeable in these they're matters. They're merchants. They're yeah. not clinicians. Right. right. They're not trained, really, unfortunately, and that's something that uh, uh, I think should change. I think dispensary staff should be should be trained, and uh, not just in you know what it tastes like, but also in what it could potentially be doing. But so my my message to the mothers out there, expecting mothers out there is be careful. Um, If you can, just don't do it. Even if, you know, um, we don't really know now what the dangers are, you should be careful. The other thing is that we should find out what the dangers really are, if there are any dangers. Uh, You know, there might not be. There might not be. Maybe there is a concentration or a dose at which, you know... Beneficial to her nausea or something like that. Beneficial that that does not affect brain brain development or or body body development. You know, honestly, I I, I don't know. We don't know. There are ways in which we can address the issue without, of course, you know, breaching any ethical rules. And this is by using, for for example, induced... uh, Stem cells, uh, human stem okay, cells. Yeah. We can uh, study the impact uh, with careful studies, not with sensationalistic studies, with careful studies with um, full dose response studies that look really at dosages of THC and the other cannabinoids and understand how these different dosages can impact the, the development, the differentiation, the, uh, the proliferation of stem cells. And from this knowledge, we can make inferences about what could happen in a real developing fetus. It's not the same, but we can we learn a lot it's and we can make indicator. inferences about it. Okay. Do you think there's similar risk in secondhand smoke exposure? That is a completely open area. I mean, as you know, this has been pretty recently, even in with tobacco research, this has been introduced very recently. And we really do not know what is the lowest amount of THC that has absolutely no risk. So that that kind of that kind of, part. that kind of data are not there. Okay, that opens up a whole other larger dimension, especially with the legalization. You know, you can imagine there's yeah. You walk through any any name the setting. You're walking through it, and there you get this blast of cannabis smoke coming out. So it's yeah, it's it's everywhere. Well, this begs the question that. 
part of the, and we're going to get into more of the Prop 64 funding, all the competition around now, all these parties that are vying for uh, those resources. But there, it, there should be a, a full-on campaign to warn pregnant women that this is a consequential kind of a consumption choice they're making. We don't know yet. We're not clear on that what the cannabinoids effect is on the fetus, nor are we clear. And, but we're clear on, though, that the smoke inhalation definitely is a negative effect on the fetus. So that's but there there needs to be, I think, a very big public information campaign right out in front sort of to to the way we, we've we've successfully managed to get pregnant women not to consume alcohol, not to smoke necessarily. And um, so that a similar campaign to sort of get ahead of when people think that their dispenser is giving them good information when, in fact, these women's health and their fetal health is being undermined. Well, we don't know if it's been undermined, but obviously it's better safe than sorry. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, that's the I, I really believe that the, the pillars here are research, education, and prevention. These are the key, three key pillars that we need to we need to understand that those are the things that we need to uh, put at the center uh, of our agenda as we uh, approach this big experiment, which is the legalization of a cannabis that has been criminalized for over 50 years. Okay, we're, let's we'll talk about the Controlled Substance Act 1970 in a bit, but let's now turn our attention to the extent to which cannabis affects our ability to drive. And we we mentioned a little bit about the genetic variation from from person to person, from individual to individual. Uh, in your editorial, the same person uh, can have detectable blood THC levels and be perfectly functional, or have undetectable levels and be impaired. So, can you talk to where we are in the in March 2018 to understand the variability of the impact of cannabis on individual drivers? operating California. The issue is how do we assess if a person is under the influence of cannabis or not? And again, you know, the default mode for us is to think, hmm, we know that already because we have ways of doing it for alcohol that works that work very, very well. We have limits for blood alcohol that uh, we have established, you know, based on uh, a number of studies, animal studies and human studies. And those limits are realistic in that uh, most individuals, the vast majority of individuals who have alcohol levels above a certain amount, um, do experience intoxication and they are enabled, impaired in their driving. The question is, does the same hold true for cannabis? And all we know tends us to answer negatively to that question. In other words, Whereas with alcohol, the levels of alcohol are in blood, are correlated with the intoxication. With cannabis, the levels of THC in blood are not necessarily correlated with intoxication. So if legislation is put in place that establishes a link between THC levels and intoxication, but at the scientific level, those, that relation does not maintain we have a problem because we have a law that does not correspond to the facts and that potentially is is a source of trouble it's also trouble for everybody because the law could be 
question. You know, there could be an innumerable lawsuits, uh, you know, coming down down the pipe. And do we really want to be boggled in, in that? Instead of spending uh, maybe a few more front, months and uh, years, maybe a couple of years of research, I think it's a, it's a, it's a actually a very approachable uh, problem and it's a solvable problem. You think problem. it is approachable then? Oh, yeah. It's entirely approachable. It's entirely solvable. Okay. Well, that... Well, we need as to. long as we keep our mind open, you know, law enforcement uh, officers who I've spoken are very, very, very um, thoughtful. But I think the example of ethanol, of alcohol, is so strong. The president of alcohol is so strong that they really don't see how cannabis can be so, so different. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and as you mentioned, that there are people that are consuming cannabis... Oh, for various reasons, and it remains in their body for uh, different lengths of time. And so, if they're pulled over for whatever reason, and they have, they've managed their cannabis consumption. Res- I don't know. Responsibly is a. It's not a, a clinical call. That's a valid one for me to make. But, but the fact, though, like you said, that the that they could be tested for the presence of THC, and they're perfectly clear in their ability to operate their car but if there is a a level that you as we're talking about if it's a if it's a fast rule a level that exceeds a certain amount that is determined to be uh, harmful a level then like back to what you're saying there were could be legal challenges where the person felt completely yeah, let me let me clarify. I, I think law enforcement officers uh, care about impairment. If impairment is proven, uh, uh, honestly, regardless of whether it's produced by cannabis or by any other substance, it, it doesn't really matter. But if there is a question about the impairment, and if the um, in, in now the deciding factor is the level of THC, that is something that in in court could be impugned and it could be seriously it could be seriously challenged uh, so that is something we need to be uh, very careful about uh, we want to have a way of determining DUI driving our influence that is that it is objective and as much as possible generalizable to most individuals certainly not everybody but most individuals it's interesting I think a lot of people, think about the legalization of cannabis in uh, terms of criminal justice reform or one aspect of it. So, you know, essentially let's maybe not feed as many people into the system for use of something like cannabis. But it it sounds like this is an issue where, you know, it could turn into potentially uh, some users, you know, now using a, a legal substance, but they're still kind of entering the criminal justice system because of a blood instrument. Yeah, I mean, ideally, exactly. I agree. Ideally, what we would like to have is a means of determining impairment that is objective. It's not mm-hmm. based solely on a behavioral test. That you know, behavioral tests are great, and there are officers in our state of California that know how to run those tests very, very well, and they're okay. very well trained. Okay. But human behavioral tests are always open to bias, and that's always a problem. So if there is a bias, and on top of that, the THC measures are are not, not the, adequately not capturing the, the problem. In the world. Then yeah. we do we do have we do have a little bit of trouble out there. Just calls for further research, right? That's, well, that's yeah. the whole thing. We we keep coming back to, and and but you were saying that this this is like the most manageable research 
issue that we could bring up. It is manageable. It this is one. not possibly not the far. most manageable one. It's certainly very, very manageable. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. And so are those, are, is somebody working on that right now? Yeah, folks here at UCI right, right are working here. on that on right the, now. Right yeah, there. Right, okay. Right. Well, that's good news. That's, that's a, there's movement there. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is UCI neurobiology and anatomy professor, Dr. Daniel Piumelli. He is the co-director of the UCI Center for the Study of Cannabis, and he's studying the body's cannabinoid system and is a proponent in closing the gap, as we're talking about here, of research for a fuller application of cannabis to treat of, uh, people of all ages. And my esteemed intern today, Tara White, vice president of the the Science, Science, Policy, Science Group. Policy Group, SPG, I've got that. Uh, and she's my intern today with a, a much better resume to be interviewing Daniel Piamelli than mine. So I'm so glad that this is uh, all aligning beautifully. So we're talking about lots of biases about consuming cannabis and the some of these blunt instruments. Let's go. Some of this all comes from that role that the Controlled Substance Act of 1970 uh, that classified THC. It's cut It's cut two ways that classification it's penalizing drug abuse and it biases against beneficial uh, you know features of cannabis you make the case that we've got us we've got to step up in encouraging the medical progress and in, in researching post the um, controlled substance act you know what we what we can get out of cannabis so um why don't you well, there's a legal thing, and I'm trying to stay. There's a temptation to go into sort of legal instruments and that kind of a thing, but I, I want to stay on the actual research possibilities. So, where inside in that Controlled Substance Act of 1970 is there a way to to redirect the attention on the research? How you can move through, move up on this this Controlled Substance Act of 1970 to advance these beneficial uses of cannabis. Is there room in the legislation or we've got to like rethink the whole leadership picture? Look, I'm not a legal expert, so I'm not really in the position to answer that, uh, that question intelligently. What I can tell you is that when that uh, law was enacted in 1970, we knew very, very little about cannabis and certainly we had no uh, evidence that it was either uh, a highly abusable substance which uh, is the the, the, reason, the core reason why it's included in the most restrictive schedule of the CSA, the so-called Schedule One. Yeah. Neither did we uh, know that it was a very dangerous substance, which is another reason why it is included in that schedule. Uh, so it is a misplaced and outdated piece of legislation that I think has to be updated, has to be profoundly changed. I don't see right now a political uh, a political environment where this uh, with, no. is likely to happen. But at the state level, of course, things are happening. And at one point, my understanding is is that a certain amount of harmonization has to occur between what uh, happens at the state level and what happens at the federal federal level. From my viewpoint as a scientist, I can yes. tell you that the uh, uh, working uh, around the, the CSA, uh, Sub- Controlled Substance Act, is entirely possible, lawfully. It's entirely possible, but is extremely uh, time-consuming and labor-intensive. A lot of hoops <laughs> to jump through, I imagine. Yeah, there are lots of hoops to jump through, and there are you know, a lot of paperwork that needs to be done. Now, look, you know, uh, uh, we do have 
I understand that sometimes paperwork is needed, uh, but how many times my license has to be lost somewhere at the DEA before I get, it gets accepted? That is a question. That Seriously, I, uh, probably oh, very yeah, restricted on uh, where you can get your your cannabis, your research grade cannabis, if you will. We are very restricted. We can only get it from one single source, the University where? of Mississippi. Okay. And that's the only that's, that's the only uh, federally approved contractor. And that particular compound, I mean, I, I mean, I know very well the folks in Mississippi are very, very good people. The issue and very good scientists. So the issue is that uh, it, you know, whenever you have a monopoly, you always have a problem. And yeah. it, you know, what people are using these days, you know, in the streets of California, and what you find in dispensaries in Colorado, and what you find, what you can get from Mississippi, are very different. Mm-hmm. Very well, different. Well, there's more animals. variability than. Oh, yeah, I imagine yeah, the research-grade yeah. cannabis is probably purer and just just different than your kind of street or everyday dispensary. Exactly. But that's not that, that's not simply the, the issue. The issue is actually that the uh, you know you can in cannabis you can breed the, the plant to have different levels of THC, different levels of T of CBD, which is cannabidiol, this non-cannabinoid uh, uh, compound. Uh, that is also interacting somehow with THC. We do not understand exactly how. Mm-hmm. There are all a lot of different terpenes that give smell, that give taste. So, the, I mean, you can actually, in the market uh, today, you can find um, uh, cannabis that has a lot more, for example, THC than you can get from uh, Mississippi mm-hmm. or a lot more CBD than you can get from Mississippi. And people are using that cannabis. They're not using the Mississippi cannabis. Right. So if we do a study in humans and we're using the Mississippi cannabis, uh, what are we learning? We're learning something. It's not that we're wasting our time, but wouldn't it be better if we could get something that is closer to right. what better to real a life, there a better vein. match? You know, at the end of the yeah. day, we cannot do everything, right? You know, if people are using a hundred different types, we cannot do studies on a hundred different types. It would be too expensive, impossible. But we have to pick something that is the close, closest possible to the vast majority of the usage, and that's what we have a problem now. Well, that confounds the ability then to set up those those levels that. Would be set by law for if well we said it can't be set by law but um, but how s- setting different levels for the the driving impairment standards so I mean if you're saying there's so many different pot uh, cannabis products out there and that that nothing is standardized so that it, yeah nothing is standardized and you know the the, the main uh, ultimately is due also to the fact that cannabis being now a recreational substance Oof, it is not subjected to any FDA control. Um, not only because it's not federally federally still illegal, but also because tendentially the FDA exerts very little control on uh, on uh, wh- whatever is not uh, uh, strictly speaking a drug. Uh, in, the FDA is actually quite strict in drug, um, uh, right? As, like as far as new drugs are concerned, drugs, but yeah. cannabis, as you know, right now is completely out of the FDA purview. Uh, now that is, I think, substantially it's a problem. The states are are picking up that you know the bureau of cannabis control has set some limits and has got some uh, has put some rules um we'll see how they uh, how they work out um but i think you know we do need rules we can't just uh, we can just let anybody do whatever they want because we're not dealing with a completely um harmless substance we're dealing with a substance that has effects on people and some of those effects can be potentially dangerous, especially if the use is chronic. So we've got a couple of things we've got to make sure we can fit in the remainder of this hour. Um, that So we'll, we'll take that 
aspect of it, and we want to make sure we do get to go get to that the opiate sort of uh, surrogate mm-hmm. that, uh, that cannabis can provide. But we're so the research you're talking about it's it's it has to be promoted or it has to be defended at every turn as the funding is made available from California's Prop 64. So you're concerned about how all the stakeholders and that are looking at that money, including, I'm thinking, including the state of California sort of general revenue budget, that they're going to be eyeing that stash of money the way they've looked at other propositions that are funded for various projects. So what do you want to secure in the California Prop 64 funding that gets the most bang out of the the research buck so that we get past some of this uncertainty that you're talking about. Yeah, there are many, many questions that we need to answer with research. And if we don't answer those questions with research, the space will be occupied by ideology or special interests. And that is what we need to be all aware and 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 concerned and concerned about. Now, the Prop 64 um, um, specifically uh, allocated uh, $10 million a year for 10 years to research on cannabis, plus $2 million per year for 10 years. They would go to the University of California, San Diego, again, to study uh, cannabis. The University of California, San Diego has a, uh, a center for the study for medicinal cannabis research uh, that has been active since um, 1998, I believe, after the uh, enactment of Prop 215, which legalized cannabis for medicinal use. So $10 million a year sounds like a lot of money, but it isn't. No, you know, when it comes to research, especially clinical research. Research is expensive. It's very expensive. And let me give you a sense of what we really need to, we need, really need to know. Uh, we really need to understand exactly how uh, we, uh, we tell somebody is using uh, and is driving. We need to do that, as we, and we already talked about it. Yes, but sir. we do need to understand, and I think that's really urgent, how cannabis can help or harm the current opioid crisis. And I repeat, help or harm. We don't really know. It is really urgent that we tackle that question. So what we know from many studies is that cannabis is actually a pretty decent painkiller when it comes to chronic pain in adults. Uh, um, Of course, we know that a lot of people uh, use it, but there are formal clinical studies that have uh, provided very solid evidence that uh, cannabis can be of help in chronic pain. A lot of people who use the opiates are people who are in chronic pain, and sometimes chronic pain and prescription opioid use is the first step toward opioid addiction. Now, things are changing, but this has been very much the case for the last many years, several years. So, of course, if cannabis could replace the opioids in that particular function, it would be probably a good thing, especially because you cannot die of cannabis overdose, but you can die of opioid overdose for a variety of technical reasons. Right. The question is that we need to make sure that indeed two things. First, cannabis is really effective in pain, and we need to understand which forms of pain and what dosages, et cetera, et cetera, and we don't know that. So that's a very important area for research. And the other is... If we now combine cannabis and the opiates, are we making the opiates more dangerous or less dangerous? Oh that drug is there. right. Oh. So that this is a, this is a very very important question to ask. Now, I am honestly, I'm quite optimistic about this. I actually don't think that cannabis is going to be part of the problem. I think I'm more yeah. of the 
of the uh, of the school that thinks is going to be possibly part of the solution. But before before I make that statement with strong, greater strength, sure, sure. We need the data, and that's why we need the research funds. That is really the key thing, because the federal government is not going to pick up this tab. We know that. That's not what they do. And um, I, I think especially the state of now. Yeah. Well, especially now. I mean, no, don't get me wrong. The National Institute on Drug Abuse has done a terrific job at, at, uh, at this. You know, they, that's what they've done for many years. But they're, they're called the National Institute on Drug Abuse. They're not called the National Institute on of use. Cannabis Use as an Analgesic. So that is, a, yeah. you know, that's, that's the... It's a bias. It's, it's a bias. It's, it's their... Kind of a it's, different it's their mission scope. It's their mission. It's a, they have a different mission. But the state has now, I think, the duty to answer these questions. And these are answerable questions. Again, you know, I don't think that, you know, running a study that definitively proves that uh, uh, or disproves the effectiveness of cannabis in pain is an extremely costly uh, enterprise. It's a fairly costly enterprise but can be done certainly within you know the range of the kind of, of the of the prop 64 funding uh, and over a period of a couple of years so in three five years from now we could have an answer to that specific question it's in and, reach yeah. and that would be that is again entirely feasible if we put our act together and do it well how close are we though to I mean, what you you know what the San Diego UC San Diego people are doing, and I don't know where's where's the first ten million getting cut. Or is that up for competitive? We we don't application? know. We do not know actually. So we, it's not currently being doled out. No, no. Okay. In fact, <laughs> we don't even know which entity in the state Stop. of California mm-hmm. is going to the disperse the place. funds. Right. So the, there is uh, the idea that the University of California itself, through the office of the president could be distributing these monies. There is the idea that uh, perhaps UCSD could be distributing these monies. There is the idea that the Bureau of Cannabis Control could be doing the distribution. So th- these are all ideas, and um, uh, the politics behind it, it's way above my pay grade, and I don't know what decisions are being made as we speak, but I know that they are. Is okay. there a timeline? Do we know maybe when these funds might begin be to be dispersed for for research? In theory, we should start seeing the first funds rolling. You know, in July, July, August, uh, two thousand eighteen. So this it's summer. Yeah, tomorrow essentially, and I don't see how this can happen. You have to imagine the mechanics of it. You know, there must be a structure to uh, dole out the funds, which means there must be a structure that receives applications and sends applications out for review and then receives the reviews and makes a decision about funding. That easily takes six months or so. That that is a long process. So, Daniel, you you must have lots and lots of uh, proposals all ready to go. You're, You're just waiting for that structure to be... Uh, published and distributed, so and you can you're ready to. You've got me you've and got four about different fifty studies you or a hundred. Sorry, me right, about right. fifty or a hundred other. But it's all everybody's waiting for for that. Right. That really important so the, institutional the, step taking. Right. The, the, an important thing to know is that the funds uh, are not very mm, substantial. They're only ten million dollars, but they are restricted to universities. Uh, uh, state universities. So it's University of California and the California state system. So the competition is um, not as large as if if it was just a federal government, an NIH type of funding. Still, there there are many, many researchers I know that like me, like me and I say by me, me and my UCI colleagues, we are all lined up and we are trying to now actually 
uh, instead of competing for this, we're trying to uh, reach out to one another yes. and say, look, you know, what is that you are good at doing and was it that I am good at doing and can we join force, forces because it's not so much money and Foster can actually... a more collaborative approach. Precisely. Yeah. We're talking to UCSD. I, you know, I've been, you know, in friends with folks down there for many, many years and we're talking with them, for example, with the with the intention, and it's it, it's a very serious intention at this point to create some sort of a consortium across UC to study cannabis, in which again, you know, we look at each other's in the eyes and say, what is it that you can do? What is it that I can do? And honestly, can I do it better than you, or can you do it better than me? I think because the money is limited and the uh, the need is very very big. I think it's time we do that. It sounds, yeah, the most efficient way to get the most out of those it's, research dollars. It's certainly the most responsible way of doing <laughs> it. So the, the money, uh, it, you've made very clear that it it's not going to go as far as it needs to. Is there, are there other sources? I mean, with uh, is the private sector that's investing in all of this this kind of cannabis pharma? Are they uh, also a a possible funding? source for advancing what you need to know? The, I think the cannabis industry is growing. It's growing. And they're receptive uh, to what, what you might need to have researched? Would they, I mean, are they a possibility? As I was saying, the cannabis industry is growing. Right. This is a very special industry. It's an industry that has emerged out of, uh, of nowhere. And With it's an industry that is, now, that is now being... Uh, uh, also taken over by business folks who, you know, rightly want to they make see money. Some money yeah. And uh, I'm entirely in favor of that. Don't don't get me wrong. Uh, I I think it's good, and it could be good for the economy of the state. It would bring nice tax revenues, et cetera, et cetera. Now, whether the industry is ready to um, do what the pharmaceutical industry uh, used to do, and I doubt it. Uh, even the pharmaceutical industry is now doing much less research than they used to uh, 20, 15 years ago, and oh, uh, they're moving more toward development. I don't see the cannabis industry as being that type of, uh, providing that type of, uh, of support. Also, um, because it's not yet completely fully mature, um, expectations mm, from entrepreneur in the cannabis space can be sometimes uh, a little childish that, uh, you know, they give money and they expect then, therefore, to have a result that fits there exactly what their wishes are. But this is not what scientists do. No, and it's a so totally that's why, different crowd. Right. You know, we need they, they need to understand that, and they, they, some of them are, some of them do, actually, that uh, there will be uh, uh, discoveries of uh, positive effects of cannabis, but also discoveries of negative effects of cannabis. And my message to them has always been, it's in everybody's best interest to understand so that you can actually Product. develop yeah. in, in a healthy way. Right. And it's healthy, it's productive, and it's long-lasting. And on that note, although there's... We've opened all the can of worms, and they're all here at our can of worm dispensary. <laughs> we'll, okay. we visit as things continue to develop. I hope that we'll, you know, you know, we've got an open invitation to come back and and thank you, talk, thank you, cover it all. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. My guest was Dr. Daniel Piumelli. He's the co-director of the UCI Center for the Study of Cannabis, and we're talking about we're we're at the cusp of some major essential findings for the in the name of public health with cannabis research. Well, I wanted to thank Tara White. You gave a whole additional dimension. She's my intern today. So what do you think? 
I had a good time. Thank you for having me, Claudia. Well, it's it was good to have you on here with some of these really good follow-up questions. So if you're interested, you know, we could also think of the, the co-hosting proposition. So mm-hmm. if you're, because I know that the, the science policy group is going to, um, you, it was going to be a flock of you, but for you to carry a whole show week to week, we'll see if you want to. Yeah, we'll see how that develops. With some other, yeah. So it's been good having you on. Well, next week I'm going to bring on Charles Bleck. He was just on with his work with the Orange County chapter of the Brady Campaign for the Prevention of Gun Violence. He's got a whole lot to say since then, like to uh, walk out scheduled uh, the day after the interview next week, March 14th, and the march in OC and around the nation, March 24th. We'll talk to you next week. want to thank everybody for listening. 